1947, a group of atomic scientists created what is known as the Doomsday Clock. This clock measures the likelihood that the world will end in some kind of man-made global catastrophe. Now, midnight on the clock represents doomsday. In fact, here's a picture of that doomsday clock. Uh, since the beginning of its creation, uh, the clock was set at seven minutes to midnight. And over the course of decades, the clock has moved back eight times and actually moved forward 16 times. In 1991, the clock was the furthest back it's ever been, and that was 17 minutes uh, to midnight. But in 2020, the clock was reset, and the new time is 100 seconds to midnight. In fact, the president and CEO of the Bulletin for Atomic Scientists, uh, Rachel Bronson, said this. She said, we are now expressing how close the world is to catastrophe in seconds, not hours or even minutes. What they mean is that the end is drawing near. Now, we know this because we read our Bible, right? Uh, we know the Bible talks about there's coming a day when God will judge the world, when doomsday will happen someday. And uh, so what we're looking at today is Revelation chapter 16, and that is that day. If you've got your Bible, I want you to open up with me to Revelation uh, chapter 16. And while you're turning there, let me just say that Revelation 16 may be the darkest chapter in the Bible. Very few preachers get up on Sunday morning wishing they could preach on Revelation 16, okay? Uh, because it is a sobering chapter. It is a fearful uh, chapter. It's a chapter about wrath and punishment and judgment day. But it's an important chapter because we need it. It's, it's in the Word of God, and we don't just preach the verses we like. We need to hear the whole counsel of God. And it also reminds us of what that day will be like so that we can anticipate that day. So let me just give you a little roadmap as we kind of make our way through this chapter together. Let me give you a roadmap of where we're going. We're talking about judgment day. We're talking about doomsday. And let me give you four things uh, that we'll notice along this road together. One is that it's a day of wrath. Secondly, it is a day of refusal Thirdly, it is a day of resolve. And then lastly, it is a day of reminders, okay? So that's where we're going. So let's look at it. Revelation uh, chapter 16, uh, the day of wrath. This is the word of God. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped its image. The second poured out his bowl into the sea and it turned to blood like that of a dead person and all the life in the sea died. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. Now skip over to verse 8. The fourth pulled out, poured out his bowl on the sun, and it allowed 
it was allowed to scorch people with fire and the people were scorched by the intense heat. Now drop down to verse 10. The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Stop right there. What John is describing here is really beyond words. He's seeing these visions. He's trying to capture it in language that we can understand. But what he's describing is judgment day. He's describing doomsday. The clock is striking midnight. Now, by the way, this is not something that has suddenly happened. It's not like it just was great one day and then it wasn't. Uh, we've already seen, we've, we've been studying the book of Revelation now for several weeks, and we've already seen multiple judgments, right? We saw the breaking of the seals and the horsemen of the apocalypse, and we saw all that in chapters uh, 5 and 6. And then we saw uh, the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9. And then we saw the rise of the Antichrist in chapter 13 and all the persecutions happening. And so when we finally get here to these bold judgments, these final series of judgments on the earth, it's not like there hasn't been warning. It's not like there hasn't been a call to repentance all the way through. But people have, have hardened their heart. And so we come now to this final series of judgments, and they're called the bold judgments because John says he saw seven angels with seven bowls. And, and think, of, think of like a, a, a large saucer, shallow saucer that they can quickly pour out. And they're pouring out plagues and wrath on the earth. Now, before we just jump into this, let me step back and give you a couple of observations that are important as we uh, make our way through. First observation is that these bold judgments are very similar to the trumpet judgments in Ch Revelation chapter 8 and 9. Uh, the trumpet judgments, uh, however, are partial judgments. It's a third of the earth, a third of the ocean, a third of the rivers, a third of the sun. These are partial judgments to get men's attention, to get people's attention. Where the bold judgments are final judgments, complete judgments, catastrophic judgments. The second observation is that these bold judgments are very similar to the plagues in Egypt. Uh, many of you in your connect groups have been studying the book of Exodus. And, and a couple of weeks ago, you actually dove into the plagues of Egypt. And so you're gonna notice there's a lot of similarity here. Both of them deal with boils or sores. Both of them deal with water turned to blood, hail, frogs, darkness. Uh, there's a song of Moses in, in Exodus. There's a song of Moses in Revelation chapter 15. And so we see clearly there's a tie to, to both of these, and you'll even see it more as we make our way through. But the judgment in Egypt was a local judgment, only on that group of people. But the bold judgments are a global judgment, a, globe, a judgment of entirety. So what are these bold judgments? What are they? Well, let's just kind of look at them very quickly. Uh, the first one here, uh, painful sores in verse 2. That's very similar to the boils that happened in Egypt in Exodus chapter 9, verse 10 and 11. But I want you to notice here that these only appear on those who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. This is not on everybody. It's only on a specific group who worshipped the beast. Certainly not on God's people. Number two, uh, uh, second bowl or the, is a plague on the seas. 
that they turn to blood, verse 3. Some speculate that maybe this is like a red tide that we see happen on the West Coast still today. We don't know if this is maybe a natural phenomenon or maybe a supernatural phenomenon. Whatever it is, it's, it's catastrophic to uh, ocean life. The third one is a plague on the rivers and springs. This is, again, similar to Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, where the Nile is turned uh, to blood. But, but the point here is that there's no drinking water. There's no clear, clean drinking water. I read an article this week. The CDC said that over 2 billion people today struggle with clear, sanitary drinking water. And what comes of that is, is not the fact that you just get thirsty or that you need it to live, but all the diseases and dysentery and, and all kinds of physical ailments that happen with contaminated drinking water, and this will happen on a global scale. Number four is the sun, verse eight, scorching people. We don't know, is this radiation? Is this nuclear fallout? Uh, we don't know. Maybe solar flares like some movies have depicted. Number five is darkness, verse 10 and 11. But again, notice it's limited to only the throne of the beast and only on his kingdom, not on God's people. And so I think it's interesting to note here that if there's a tie to Exodus, if we learn anything from Exodus that can apply here, one of the things we can note is that in the Exodus outpouring of God's wrath there, God's people were always protected. In fact, if you want to look in the sermon notes on the, on the app, you can dig into all the listing and remuneration of those verses. But over and over and over, it said it fell on the Egyptians, but not on the people, the Israelites in the land of Goshen. Over and over, they're protected, they're protected. And we kind of see that here. It, the, the boils only on those that take the mark of the beast. Darkness only on the kingdom here. So we see the sense that God's people protected while God's wrath is poured out on God's enemies. And I believe Jesus told us this would be the case. In Matthew 24, verse 21, you can just write that in the margin of your Bible, Matthew 24, 21, he said, for at that time, there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Jesus is talking about this time. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. Because of the elect. Now, who's the elect? It's a really important question. Who's the elect? Who, who's he cutting the days short for, for the sake of the elect? Well, 18 times the word elect appears in the New Testament. Every time except one, it refers to Christians, to those who are in Christ. You are saved by grace. You are elect, chosen before the foundation of the world. And so the, the other outlier is one statement of referring to angels. And so here he's saying that, that God's going to cut the, this time short, as bad as it is, to preserve the elect, to protect uh, his own people. So, you might be asking the question now, why in the world would God do this? I mean, this is bad. This is really bad. How, how, can, a, how can a loving God, a God of grace and mercy and kindness and goodness, do this kind of thing to people on the earth? And that's a really important question. And I think we get an answer to that question in verse 5. Look at Revelation 16, verse 5. He said, I heard the angel of the waters say, you are just the Holy One 
who is and who was because you have passed judgment on these things because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink and they deserve it. Now stop right there. This is a scene in heaven, okay? And I want you to circle the words just in verse five and holy in verse five. Those are important words. Yes, is God loving? Somebody say yes, right? Yeah, God's loving, God's merciful, God's gracious. Praise God for that, right? Those are all attributes of God. But God is also, not just that, he is also holy. And he is also just. Holy means other than us, separate than us, perfect, cannot even tolerate or look at sin or wickedness or evil. And God is also just. In other words, he will bring justice on those who deserve it. You know, there's something in all of us that wants justice, right? Whenever we don't see justice prevail, we're upset. We have a righteous indignation. Somebody harms you, somebody steals from you, somebody does something bad to you. You want justice, right? You want the hammer to come down on them. You want justice for them, but if you do something wrong, you want mercy on you, right? Justice for them, a mercy for me. That's what we want. But, but here what we find is that God equally distributes justice equally distributes. He is holy and he is just. Let me show you one more thing. Look at verse seven. Check this out. Verse seven. He says, and then I heard the altar say, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. Uh, The people around the altar are saying, God, look, look at what it says here. He calls him Lord God almighty. That's like Triple exclamation point. You are Lord, you're King. That's what that means. You are God, you're divine from beginning to end and you are almighty. You're the creator and sustainer of all things. Now I want you to understand that what he's saying here is that all those things equal the word sovereign. You're sovereign, you're King, you're ruler, you're creator, you're Lord, you sustain it all, you are sovereign. And even in the word sovereign is the word reign. You reign, you rule. Basically what he's saying is this, God created the world, he created the oceans, he created the earth, he created the stars, he created the sun, he created, go read Genesis, he created it all and he can create it all and he can take it all out. And he can recreate it again. And it's all his because he's sovereign over it all. So why does God do this? Because God is sovereign, he is holy, and he is just. Now I know some people may say, well, you know what? I don't think I'd do it that way. You know? I mean, if I was God for a day, I don't think I'd do that. In fact, some people take it a little bit further and they say, well, you know what? I think that God's wrong in this. God's evil in doing this. This is a bad thing that God is doing. How could you serve a God like this? And uh, to that person, I would say, okay, so are you now the moral standard for the universe? I mean, you went to public school, really? I mean, honestly, you're the moral standard. You're perfect. Uh, you're all wise. Uh, you're, you've never done anything wrong. Now everything's going to be measured against what you would do. Where were you again when the world was created? I don't think you were there. And I wasn't there either. 
You know, uh, this week I was just in my regular daily reading, not sermon prep, just kind of feeding my own soul. I was in Jeremiah 17 and I ran across this verse and I thought about sharing it with you guys. I ran across this verse, it said, the heart is more deceitful than anything else, incurable. Who can understand it? He's talking about the depravity of the human heart. In other words, let me just put this in the vernacular. We're totally jacked up, all right? We are jacked. I started to say, turn to the person next to you and say you're jacked up, but don't do that. Just, just receive that in your own self, all right? We're, we're a mess. We can't even fully, our even heart deceives us into thinking we're better than what we are. We're deceived to the core. Who can understand the full depth of our depravity? And then he answers it in the next verse. I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. That's what God does. God knows the depth of every heart. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is just. And he alone is able to judge the world. And he is right in doing so. It is a day of wrath. It's a day of wrath. But not only that, it is also a day of refusal. Look at verse 9. Kind of pick up in the middle of that verse, verse 9. So they blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. Run your finger down to the middle of verse 10. People gnawed their tongues because of their pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, but they did not repent from their works. All this happened and yet people refused to repent, to turn to God. Now I want you to listen to me for just a minute. Repentance is the thread that runs all the way through the Bible, all the way through. You start at the very beginning in the Old Testament, God, every prophet of God had one sermon, right? A one word sermon, repent. I mean, every single sermon, repent, repent, turn back to God, acknowledge your sin and call on his mercy, repent. When John the Baptist shows up, he preaches a sermon, repent. When Jesus preaches his very first sermon in, in Mark chapter one, verse 15, it is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Peter stands at Pentecost, he cries out and calls for people to repent and 3,000 people are saved and the, birth, the, the church's birth at that point. The apostle Paul, over and over and over, every town he went to and church he planted was based on one message of repentance. When he stood on the hill in Athens, he said that God now commands all people everywhere to repent. And when you get to the book of Revelation, there are 10 times the word repentance is used. 10 different times, over and over and over and over. People are called to repentance. But when you get to chapter 16, verse 11, you put your finger on that. That is the last time repentance is mentioned in the Bible. That's it. We're at the end of the road. This is the last opportunity. Listen, there's a season of grace and we're in it right now. Praise God for that. When you can repent, you can turn to God, you can be right with God. But there is a time when grace comes to an end and justice begins. There comes a day when 
when you can't turn back. And I'm not here to scare you. I'm just here to warn you. I mean, some of you, you, God's been working on your heart and you've been going, no, no, I'll take that later. I'll do that later. Maybe some other time you feel the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in you and you suppress it and you push him away. And listen, you do that enough times and there may be a time when you cannot repent. How many times have you presumed upon the grace of God as if it will be there for you tomorrow? That's why the Bible says, if you hear his, hear, uh, his voice, do not harden your heart. That's why people don't repent. It's because they harden their heart. And maybe that's what you've been doing. We see this, again, another correlation back to Exodus, right? When, when the plagues were coming down and Moses is going to Pharaoh saying, man, you got to get right. You got to do this right. You got to let my people go. I mean, you've seen the movie, right? You've seen it over and over and over. And, and, and it says that Pharaoh hardens his heart and he hardened his heart and he hardened his heart. And then all the way through the first part of the plagues, he hardens his heart. But you get to the last two plagues and what does it say? God hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Listen, you keep pushing the Lord away. You, see, you keep saying, I'll take care of that later. And you may come to a point when you cannot repent. These people, through all of these plagues, through all of this judgment, they just continue to harden their heart and would not, would not, would not. In fact, their heart not only became hard, it became hostile. You push God away long enough and you'll hate God. You will hate him. And that's exactly what we see here in verses 12 through 14. We see uh, the evil trinity of, uh, reappear again. We talked about them last week. Satan, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They, they emerge again in verses 14 through uh, 12 through 14. And they, through demonic signs, gather the nations together to fight against God. In fact, look at verse 16. It says, so they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Armageddon. So what is Armageddon? I think it was last week our president, in referring to the Russian-Ukraine war escalation, he said this could possibly lead to Armageddon. He used that, that word. It was all in the news cycle. What is Armageddon? What is it? The word Armageddon really is combining two Hebrew words, Har-Megedon, Har-Megedon, which means the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is an ancient village, ancient city that's located in the north part of Israel, right on the edge of the massive Jezreel Valley that stretches out like a quilt of farmland uh, in, in the northern Galilee. And it forms a very flat, massive, wide surface. In fact, it's right next to Mount Carmel. If you remember the story of Elijah, the fire coming down, it's right next to that. I've been on Mount Carmel many times and had uh, Israeli fighter jets buzzing over the top so loud that we have to stop because we can't hear each other, just rattling your bones. There's actually a military installation underground in that valley. And those planes will come shooting out of it. It's amazing. This has been the location, the site of many historic battles 
over the years, and it will be the location of this final battle, this war of wars, where ultimately Satan and the beast and the false prophet will be defeated. In verses 17 and 18, you get a little flavor of it. We're going to see more about this next week, so I'm not going to camp out here. But you see him shaking the earth. You see hail pouring down as Jesus Christ returns in great glory. But what I want you to understand is this. In all this wrath that God has poured out, there was still an opportunity for repentance. But people refused to repent. So this day is a day of wrath. It's a day of refusal, but it's also a day of resolve. A day of resolve. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, the real question is, so if we're followers of Jesus, how should we look at this day? What should we do in light of this day? And if we are alive at this time on the earth, how should we respond to this day? Well, look at verse um, 15, all right? Look at what it says in verse 15. He said, look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. It's almost like he's talking about this narrative of all that's happening and, and this gathering of this, for this big battle. And then he stops in the middle to talk to his people, all right? He's telling the story. He goes, okay, hold on. Let me talk to my guys. Okay, look. I am coming soon. By the way, I want you to circle those words, I am coming. That's where our hope is, folks, right? I'm coming, Jesus says. I'm coming. I'm coming how? I'm coming like a thief in the night. So what he's saying here is that you've got to resolve yourself in this time. Don't lose heart in this time. Resolve how? Resolve to be alert. Resolve to be awake. That's what it is. First, to resolve to be alert. He said, I'm coming like a thief in the night. By the way, Jesus initiated this illustration, this idea of a thief in the night, back in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, I believe it's in verse uh, 44, yeah, 43 and 44. He said, you know, when he's talking about the end times, and he said, if a man knew he was gonna get, his house was gonna get broken into, he'd stay awake, right? He'd stay awake, and in Texas, we'd say, he'd stay awake with a shotgun loaded, right? He, he wouldn't be caught off guard because he'd be ready. He said, you need to have that kind of readiness, ready alert, always for the coming of the Lord. And here he mentions it again. Paul picks up on this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. He said, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That is, for those that don't know Christ, when the battle starts to rage, they're going to be shocked that Jesus shows up, right? They didn't expect that. I mean, they thought they were just fighting a battle. They didn't think that Christ was going to come. So they're going to be shocked. He's going to be like a thief in the night. I wasn't prepared for that. I, I didn't know that was coming. But he goes on to say in uh, verse 4, he said, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. In other words, it's not going to surprise you. <laughs> You're going to know this is coming. Why? Because you've read the book. Right? You know. You know he's going to come this way. So you need to be ready. You need to resolve to be alert, resolve to be aware, resolve to be awake and anticipating the Lord's return. Secondly, you need to resolve to be pure and godly. He goes on to say, remain clothed so that you're not found naked. What does that mean? Well, Revelation 19, 8, 
clothing references the righteous acts of the saints. I believe what he's saying is this, clothe yourself in Jesus, clothe yourself in godliness, clothe yourself in godly acts. Don't let the darkness of this world contaminate you. Be set apart and live a godly life as, as hard as it is and look for my coming, anticipate my coming. Look, I am coming and you will be blessed when I come, he says. So be ready. I just love that song that we said, getting ready, man. We're getting ready. We're getting ready. This is the theme of the church in the end times. Man, we're ready. We're ready. Even so, Lord, come. We're ready. We're ready. So that day, judgment day, is a day of wrath. It is a day of refusal for some. It is a day of resolve for others. But let me also close off with this. It is also a day of reminders when you step back from Revelation 16 and just kind of look at it, it's reminding us of some really important things. Let me give it to you very quickly. Number one, it reminds us of God's provision. That everything that you have that's good today, that you enjoy today, is a gift from God. It's God's benevolence. Every time you drink a cold, clean glass of water, every time you walk out and it's cool in the morning, every time a gentle rain washes over the, the earth, Every time you sit down at a table and you, and you dig into a meal that was grown or was provided, all of that is the common grace of God that he gives both to his people and even to people that curse him. He still is benevolent and kind and he gives it to you today. And one day he will take it all away. One day he will say, you didn't want, you didn't want to acknowledge that this came from me. All right, see what it's like when I take it away when I take away my benevolence. So this is why we hold hands at the table and we say, God, thank you for this food. We do it because we're grateful and we acknowledge that this is all the goodness and benevolence and common grace of God. So it reminds us of God's provision. It also reminds us of God's patience. That listen, we're not in Revelation 16 today. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad? I'm really glad that we're not living today in Revelation 16. But I don't want you to get to think, well, yeah, those people, they were really bad. We're not really so bad right now. They were really bad and they really needed that. No, 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 no. Uh, God could bring it today, right? God would be just in bringing it today. It's not like we're not as sinful as they are. No, God would be just and right in bringing it today. Why doesn't God bring it today? Because God, 2 Peter 3 says that God is patient with us, not wanting any to perish but all to come to faith in Jesus. The very fact that this isn't coming down now is because God's giving you one more chance to be right with him. One more chance to repent and to turn while you still can. And lastly, it's a reminder of God's payment for our sin. When you see the wrath of God coming down, it's a reminder to us that at the cross of Calvary, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, not on us. That if you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about the wrath of God being poured out on you because it was poured out on Jesus. He took the cup of God's wrath on the cross and he paid for it in full. And if you were found in Christ, then you were covered, you were sealed, you belong to him. Remember the doomsday clock? 
Remember what time it is? 100 seconds to midnight. If there's ever a time to get right with God, it's now. Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? Maybe you're here and you say, Craig, I don't know that I am right with God. If I were to die right now, I don't think that I would be saved because I've never placed my trust and faith in Jesus. But you can right now in this very moment. And I wanna give you an opportunity to do just that. I'm gonna pray a simple prayer of faith, asking Jesus to forgive you and to come into your life, to wash you clean, for you to commit your life to following him. And if you wanna receive Christ today by faith, then I wanna give you that chance to do that right now. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Lord, you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. So maybe right now, the Holy Spirit's convicting you and you've been pushing him away. You've been suppressing it. You've been hardening your heart. Don't harden your heart today. Don't push him away today. With every head bowed, if God's moving in your heart, you wanna receive Christ, just lift up your hand. I'm not gonna call you out, but I'll lead you in a prayer right where you're seated. Lift up your hand right now. Pastor, pray for me, all right? Thank you, thank you. Lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. I need to be right with God, all right? All right, thank you, thank you. All right, thank you, I see you. Anybody else, several hands. Anybody else, pastor, pray for me. I need Jesus, I need to be right with God. Okay, all right, you can put your hand down. Just pray the simple prayer with me, right where you're seated. Dear Lord, I know I've sinned against you. I know I've gone my own way. But I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose again from the dead. So I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Wash me clean. Jesus, you are my only hope. And I choose to turn from my sin and follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for your great love. And Lord, I thank you, God, for your word today, as sober as it is. Lord, thank you that today is a day of grace. Today is a day of mercy. Thank you that your patience continues today. Lord, help us to live with a sense of resolve in this week. Resolve to, to be alert and eager and longing for your coming, Lord, and resolve to live godly lives while we can. To be quick to share the gospel, quick to trust you. Lord, we long for you. Even, even now, your church is saying, Lord, we're ready, we're ready, we're ready, we're ready, we're ready. Even so, Lord, come.